far as I know, no study anywhere has ever looked at using moxa for TB in human cases. We're interested in the component of the epidemic or the pandemic that doesn't respond to the TB drugs, but unfortunately isn't diagnosed in most cases, because those are the ones where the drugs are too expensive and also when the available drugs that are used are very ineffective and the side effects are pretty bloody horrific. We got reports that they treated some people who had very advanced TB who were expected to die and they hadn't died. And we think it works by stimulating the host immune system to respond. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Merlin Young is determined to provide safer and more effective treatment for the world's most deadly pandemic that today is killing more than 3,000 people per day, tuberculosis. In particular, Merlin has spent the past 14 years working with moxibustion in the treatment of multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, work that has taken him to many places, including Uganda, South Africa, and North Korea. Along with Jenny Craig, Merlin is co-founder of Mox Africa, a British-based charity investigating direct moxibustion immunomodulation as an adjunctive treatment for TB. He is a practitioner of Japanese acupuncture and is author of The Moon Over Matsushima, Insights into Mugwort and Moxibustion. In this episode, Merlin and I explore the history of moxibustion, discuss the challenges and victories of conducting moxibustion research and running a charity, probe through the global plight of tuberculosis, especially multi-drug resistant TB, and finish with a call to help for a Uganda family who has been pivotal in the work of Mox Africa in Uganda. Merlin has a deep reservoir of knowledge of the ancient and often misunderstood practice of moxibustion, and his insights are helpful to both the acupuncture practitioner and layperson. It helps that he is an exceptional storyteller and has immense passion for his work of service to others. He is also incredibly generous with his time and knowledge and specifically has offered to engage with anyone to discuss the challenges our world faces and what our medicine might offer those who are most vulnerable. Light some Artemisia, or perhaps incense, and settle in as Merlin blazes a global path of moxibustion. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Merlin Young. Merlin, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think this is the first time we've actually connected face-to-face, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So sometime quite a few years ago now, you were very, very helpful with me getting getting a, a book across the line. Um, you gave me some great some great feedback at the time, which I was very grateful for. So, so yeah, this is this is a, quite a privilege for me. Oh, thank you. It is for me also. Let's begin by laying out some terms here because not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with some of the the finer points of what we talk about in this podcast, but let's just start with the very basics. And can you tell us what moxibustion is? Okay, big that's big 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 question, so I'll try and be as brief as I can. So basically, you could define moxibustion or moxa as the combustion of 
some form of flammable material over or on acupuncture points. Um, the materials used have varied through the centuries, but the main, the main material that's used is processed or refined uh, mugwort leaf, um, uh, uh, which is one of the many, many Artemisias. There are a lot of Artemisias, it's very easy to get confused between them. But, um, and there are several strains that are actually used for moxa. But uh, it's a, it's a the, the leaf itself, when it's dried, you can, you can grind it up and get a very fine, uh, it's like a, it's like almost like a foamy um, material out of it. It's the, the, the leaf itself has got tiny hairs on the underside um, and the best moxa for, 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 uh, for using for moxibustion is, is almost like pure hair from the underside. You've kind of filtered out all the leaf matter and it burns at a slightly lower, lower temperature and burns quicker, which is which is advantageous, specifically from the from the perspective of the techniques that I'm going to probably describe in a few minutes. But and it's used in lots of different ways. It's used often, more more often than not, it's used in a kind of cigar, and you wave it around over either over um, uh, joints or or you 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 know joints which are painful, or you might um, uh, you might wave it around over acupuncture needles. Um, it makes a lot of smoke that way, um, but there are other ways you can you can use it as well. There's a variety of them. Basically, there's a variety of ways. Um, so I, I think that, that that gives you, a, that gives a starting point, put it like that, Todd. Yeah, that does, thank you. And with mugwort, I believe that's Artemisia vulgaris, is that correct? It's, Artemis it's Artemisia vulgaris, yes and no. <laughs> Um, the okay. Artemisia vulgaris is the it's the it's the common or garden mugwort, which grows. I mean, the mugwort grows right the way across Eurasia, in the in in, in the temperate zones. Um, I don't think it was I don't think it was native to North America, um, but I could be wrong. But I, I, my my understanding is it wasn't native to North America. But when you go to the the strains that's used in China and in Korea mainly, is Artemisia argi, A-R-G-Y-I-I. The, the strains in Japan, Artemisia princeps or Artemisia montana. So they're, they're, they're marginally different. And I'm not a botanist, so I can't really tell you exactly what the difference is, except that they make better moxa. Both of those make better moxa. We've made homemade moxa with using the, the local stuff here from a local park in the UK uh, and using a Japanese, we've got some, we, got, we, we, we imported some Japanese plants and I've got them growing in my garden and I share them with anybody who wants them. And um, you, can, you can make reasonable moxa fairly easily. It's a bit of hard work, but it's not difficult technolo te technically or technologically, it's not difficult to do. And um, and the, the, the Japanese, certainly the Japanese strain makes much better moxa, there's no question about it. And I think that's because the, these hairs on the underside of the leaf are a little bit uh, thicker or more, maybe possibly even more regular. I've never looked at it because I don't have a microscope, but I think it'd be interesting to compare, put it like that. So, so yes okay. and no is the answer to your question. Okay. And then what is it about mugwort or artemisia in general that 
makes it a good substance to be used for moxibustion. And I do want to talk about some of the other substances that you mentioned yeah. Okay. possibility well, of using. But what is it about mugwort? Okay, well, the, I think the main thing is it, it burns so easily. Um, I, I suspect my, I, don't, I do more than suspect, I'm convinced that its original uh, value was as, a, a, as, like as a natural uh, tinder, tinder material. These days with the internet, you've got to be careful what you mean about tinder. So let me, let me be clear. <laughs> yeah. Tin, tinder in terms of you've got to light a fire, you're going to light a fire with a spark or with, by rubbing two pieces of wood together. And so you need something that actually catches fire very easily. And I suspect that that, that um, mugwort in that way would have been used by, um, by say, nomadic groups moving around. You'd be carrying your tinder around with you. Be, and it would be a very, very, very valuable material because the last thing you want to do is not, not be able to light a fire. So it's literally, it's life or death in that respect. So it had, I would guess it, it would originally have had an intrinsic value in that way. And then in different ways, prehistorical ways, who knows how or why, it, it became value in, valuable in, in other ways. Probably in some way, sort of exorcistic type ways, like a smudging type thing, you know, um, of clear, clearing an, an airspace. Um, and then slowly you know, entered the sort of the medical field. That's that's my guess. So it's I think it's got an okay. interesting. Mean, there's lots of room for speculation. Put it like that, which is fun. Yeah. And is there anything about the plant that makes it anything about the burning of the plant that passes its medicinal properties on to the individual? What well, well I'm, through that. I'm going to say that's a that's a. Um, that's the best way to put this. I think it's it's possible, stroke probable, but contentious because we don't really have any particular evidence um, of any sort of particular properties. But to to put it in a context, um, for instance, it is used in I know it's used in Japan in uh, Buddhist temples for for as a space clearer. So it's got some sort of the smoke itself seems to have some sort of properties of some sort let's put it like that um but we're not we're not trying we're not you know we're not trying to inhale the smoke or anything in actual fact if anything we're trying to avoid it but my suspicion is that there are um there are a lot of chemicals we know there are a lot of chemicals in the plant and two of the dominant chemicals are um borneol and cineol uh, C-I-N-E-O-L-E, Cineol, if anybody wants to look it up. And both of those, um, if absorbed through the skin, can stimulate um, proteins beneath the skin, which we know can have immunological effects in the body. So um, our current conviction is using our particular method of using it, which is direct onto the skin, which I'll explain about a bit further. But... We, we're burning on the skin itself. And if there is a residue of the material which contains these, particularly these two chemicals, which as I say, are the dominant chemicals, it's something like 140 chemicals, I think they've, they've listed as, as, as potentially being in the, in the plant material. So if, that, if the residue is absorbed through the skin, 
then it could add at least amplify the effect that we're looking for particularly in in the work that we've been doing which is looking at the immunological effects um so in that respect the plant is key it's not just heat for instance um although i think that the heat uh is also key the the other thing is it it can in it burns it can be quite controlled in the way it burns which means that it can be I guess the best word would be safer to use than maybe some alternative materials. I think that's the best okay. the best answer I can do on that. Yeah. And I guess before I drill down into any more specifics about it, let's step back a little bit and talk about what moxibustion is used for. Right. Well, again, covering that a bit. Yeah. yeah. So again, it, it, there's a wide variety of uses for it. In terms of my own use in in my in my day-to-day -day practice i would guess most of the most of the ways that i use it is to reduce inflammation so in that way to reduce pain as well um and uh to promote um host immunity the immunity of the patient themselves and also sometimes to try and relieve muscle muscle sort of stagnation in the muscles to try and and uh, reduce um, what, what what we could describe as indurations in the muscle very tight muscle um, we can use it for that those are the ways I'd particularly use it but I suspect there's lots of other people would 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 describe it uh, using it in, in different ways as well it's a very adaptable treatment and um, has been used over the centuries for for a lot of different conditions so let me pick on one of those you said it's used to in the treatment of inflammation mm. one of the the hallmark signs of inflammation is heat yeah so by applying heat to something that is already heated beyond the normal body temperature what are we able to accomplish with that it seems almost counterintuitive mm -hmm. mm. it's a good point and and there are there are different schools of thought on this that have persisted right into the into the current era and the dominant one, I would say probably the most dominant orthodox one within the field of East Asian medicine is probably, okay, so, so Moxa's hot, you shouldn't apply it in a heat condition. That um, viewpoint has not been held universally, <clears throat> certainly over the last three, 400 years. There have been different opinions on it. Um, I would say it's more dependent on how the Moxa is used itself so there's a couple of things, <coughs> sorry, beg your pardon. There's a couple of things that I'd, I'd say. One is that um, I'm not a herbalist, but my understanding is that the, the, the actual herb itself of mugwort, if, you, if you're using it as a herb, it's regarded as a hot herb. Now, if you're thinking as a herbalist, and you'll know more about this than me, I'm sure, Todd. If you're thinking of a herbalist, then you don't use a hot herb in a, heat, in a hot condition. So if you are thinking herbally then you wouldn't use moxa when there's heat so if there's inflammation you wouldn't use moxa now people have been using moxa for centuries some of them not all of them but some of them say well actually the actual clinical evidence says otherwise it seems to release heat and certainly that would be certainly the way i use moxa myself that would be supported by my own experience um so it's a it's a, it's a slightly complex picture in in that respect and and uh, i mean when we're talking about heat 
we can also sort of extrapolate that. One of the one of the when I was taught originally taught my acupuncture, um, I was taught not to use moxa for um, higher blood pressure, for hypertension. And the thinking behind that, I think, was exactly the same. It was thinking hypertension mm, that's a that's a heart condition, so you're going to stoke the hypertension using it. Well, it's been used for a long time in Japan extensively for treating hypertension. It's also, I've got a book on a shelf up there, it's a Chinese book that uses it for treating hypertension. Well, you know, again, it, it suggests that it may be dependent on the way it's used and the thinking behind it. If you're thinking as a herbalist, then you shouldn't use it, but, but because, you, because, because of your training, but if you're thinking as an acumoxa spe specialist and somebody who's who's more um, who's less less thinking herbally, but is more thinking in terms of a distinct approach to to therapeutic work, then actually I don't think that rule applies. But it should be nevertheless approached with some caution and very much based on the train any amount any original training that anybody has had i think that's your first default if you if you you know if if say for instance i've just qualified from where i originally qualified from here in the uk they told me not to use it for hypertension then i would say the techniques i was taught in that school well don't use it for hypertension because they told you not to you've got no defense otherwise if anything were to go wrong but if you've learned different techniques in which are used for, for treating hypertension, then I think it's perfectly safe to use it. And he, again, you can defend the principles that you're using it on as well. So it's a mixed message. But I mean, say for instance, I had a patient um, yesterday who, who um, had uh, some acute pain in, an, in, in the elbow and the elbow was hot. So I used very, very tiny little like rice grain cones of moxone, probably about 10 to 12 of them around the inflammation. Um, three cones on each point. Then I rechecked them, found another four. They, they seem to have changed. The points seem to have changed themselves. Found another four points that I hadn't seen, sort of noticed the first time around. Did the same on them. And when the patient was going out, she said, yeah, that definitely feels better now. So it hasn't, it hasn't provoked further inflammation. And this is a patient who's been coming to me with similar complaints for some time. So. So, you know, I rest, my, I rest my case on the evidence. So I think that it does actually quite effectively remove inflammation in a joint, but also it can remove inflammation in other ways as well, I think. Yeah. Well, it seems there's a lot in in probably many medical fields where we're told in the theoretical setting not to do something because mm -hmm. it's counterintuitive or might be yeah. problematic. But I just interviewed Deborah Betts mm -hmm. and most well, a lot anyway, of what she teaches before she started teaching it was considered to be contraindicated. Yeah. But she came along and she started started to teach people, no, that point's actually not contraindicated. You just need to know how to use it. Exactly. I think that's, so. that, that sums, that's what my answer should have been right at the start. It sums it up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did the use of moxibustion originate is it a chinese thing was it japanese do we know yeah okay um we don't know i think that would be the first thing the earliest evidence 
for the use of mug, mug uh, for the use of moxibustion using mugwort is very very definitely chinese uh, does that mean it originated in china nobody knows because we're going again we're going back into prehistory but it's very very interesting because i would argue very strongly that the channel theory on which acupuncture is pinned is uh, crucially was crucially dependent on ideas that had had emerged from moxotherapy. And this is this is in pre in a pre acupuncture uh, era, um, and the evidence for that is archaeological, not textual. So the the earliest acupuncture classics they mention moxa they don't make a big deal about it but they certainly mention it and they referred to moxa to acupuncture as using my i'm, I'm going to apologize for my chinese pronunciation here because i know this is awful but zhanzhou which is zhen is a needle and zhou is the moxa so the, the, the an appropriate accurate translation would be acumoxa or something like that acupuncture and moxas different people translated different ways but not purely acupuncture um, so they refer to it, and there's no question it's there. And in several, there is there is in it, in every one of the sort of the three seminal acupuncture classics, there are references to moxa use, um, but not extensively because they were talking about mainly about acupuncture, I think. But it was very interesting that uh, there's there are two texts which were interred in a tomb, in a prince's tomb in Hubei in in um, China. And they know the date that the tomb was closed, which was, I hope I've got this right, 173 BC. Uh, no, 168 BC, I think it was actually technically. And and there were there were a load of medical texts included in the tomb with this. It was a prince's tomb with a prince. Prince was obviously some sort of um, it got some sort of interests in medicine. And there, uh, there was I think 14 medical texts, something like that. Not one of them mentioned acupuncture. And we have no reference, archaeological or good reference for acupuncture being used in the way that we understand it today from that era. But two texts were exclusively devoted to moxotherapy. And the format of those texts were, I'm going to be slightly controversial and say, almost copied and pasted and then adapted into what is chapter 10 of the Ling Shu, which is a Ling Shu is sometimes known as the acupuncture classic. And the Ling Shu chapter 10 was the first chapter that explained the circulation of qi in the channels in the meridians and all 12 meridians. Um, so it's the sort of, that's the, that's our, our sort of point zero of acupuncture theory is the Ling Shu chapter 10. And as I say, I think it's very hard not to accept that that chapter was very heavily influenced by these moxa texts. The interesting thing is the moxa texts were lost and were found in 1973 in this tomb. They were never referred to by any of the early acupuncture classics or by anybody who's writing about them. So it was almost like their tracks were sort of written over. Um, they didn't really want to want to, to uh, reference their sources. It was It was better to try and sort of um, I, I would say add a, add a, a, a sort of more um, technical twist to it with the addition of needles rather than this very simple subject um, substance that you burn on the skin. So, I, I, 
So theoretically, moxibustion was in practice prior to acupuncture. I, I would say definitely helped to. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, yeah. now the, 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 the intriguing bit is so, okay, that's fine. Where did it come from in that case? And I suspect that it came from probably Central Asia or something like that and traveled with traders. Um, uh, and I have no, no clear evidence to, to, to back that up, um, except for some very sort of abstruse references. But I'll, I will just um, reference one other thing, which is, um, uh, med well, I call it Mediterranean medicine, the Hippocratic medicine. They call it Greek, but um, which predates Chinese medicine, because Hippocratic medicine goes back to the early Hippocratic texts, go back to about 450 BC. So these moxa texts are probably from about 200 BC and the acupuncture texts are probably from around somewhere around 100 BC through to 100 AD. So, so these, these, these Hippocratic texts actually predate any written Chinese texts, as far as I know anyway, certainly. And there is a, a reference in, a, in what is regarded as, I think the oldest Hippocratic text is called of, of of the points of man, I think it's called, and it refers to the use of um, burning a, a fungus on the skin for uh, eye problems. Um, and the 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 when a description of the location of these points, you think, well, that, that sounds like bladder ten to me. That one sounds like gallbladder twenty one. You know, these are appear to be sort of locations which we would recognize uh, from acupuncture training as being acupuncture points. Now, he says burning fungus. Now, it got me interested when, when I came across this because, well, what was the fungus? And I was thinking maybe it's moxa because we, when you get this, when you've refined the, the, the leaf, you get this, this um, sort of almost like a foamy subject, uh, sub substance. Maybe that's a bit like a sort of puff fungus or something like that and it's just referred to as a fungus in the, in the translation issue but actually then I discovered that there is a fungus in in uh, probably exists in, in in Canada as well there's a fungus that exists in northern Europe of it, uh, it's called tinder fungus and there's a clue there it's used as tinder so actually they were probably burning tinder fungus on these points and if they were, then the question is, okay, so maybe this moxibustion as a therapy went from west to east first and went through the medium of tinder materials. So in Europe, the tinder, your, your, your favorite tinder material is, is a fungus that you can pick off a tree, tree sides. They've got this, it grows on the side of birch or oak trees, I think. And so you, you could take it up in little bits, you could burn it on the skin, you get this effect. And trading as the trading between, between Europe and, and the, the you know, East Asia through Central Asia, then somewhere in the middle there, you start switching your tinder materials from the tinder fungus to the tinder of the moxa. And then that's how it developed. My, this is my kind of like fanciful idea about how it may have originated, but as I say, it's prehistoric, and unless we get really lucky in finding something very bizarre, something scratched on a cave wall or something somewhere, I don't think we're ever going to know. Well, I think it's an, it's an interesting idea.
Yeah. Well, you've already started to answer my next question, but let's expand on it. Are there similar or parallel practices in other cultures beyond what you just mentioned? Mm. Well, yes. I, I think, there are, interestingly, the, the way that it's described in this Hippocratic text, as I say, it was for, for description for, 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 for eye conditions, is um, remarkably simple, um, remarkably similar to descriptions that were made by, bear in mind, this is from 450 BC, remarkably similar to, to, um, to, to descriptions that were made by um, Portuguese missionaries in Japan in the 16th, 17th century describing how moxa was used in Japan for treating eye conditions. Now, those two descriptions are separated by an astonishing 2,000 years. And yet, we substitute the two materials, and actually, you've got something that actually sounds remarkably similar. So, um, you know, obviously, nobody in Japan was ever talking to anybody in Western Europe. Uh, you know, that's a beef well, let's put it like this, highly unlikely, put it like that. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I suspect there's something there, put it like that. And in other cultures, in perhaps North America, yeah. South America, Ayurvedic medicine, any African-based medicine? Not that I know of. The only the only other one that, that, um, that uh, came to... Came to it became visible while 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 I was kind of like looking at this. Um, Lorraine Wilcox, who's who's based down in California, who knows a lot about moxa, particularly more about Chinese moxa, a great authority on it, and has read a lot of texts in the original Chinese. And she said that she'd come across a therapy that was used in Scandinavia right into the 20th century using a tinder, using a tinder fungus burning on back on back points so that's the only evidence i have of surviving uh, surviving use of a tinder tinder fungus used therapeutically into modern times um and, and, and I've, I've not heard of anybody who actually you know is a traditional therapist in i don't know in in some indigenous culture in in scandinavia that that uses still uses therapy but it may be the case but i don't know anything in the only thing I know about the use use in North America is amongst First Nations Native Americans who used it more as, a, as like for smudging and, and and you know this sort of stuff in, in um, for uh, for spiritual practice. I don't think did smudging ever go beyond clearing the air to be applied similarly as moxibustion is in, in the practice of Chinese and Japanese medicines? I don't know. As I say, the only thing I know is that it's used, it's, it's been used for space clearing in, in Buddhist ceremonies. I suspect probably in Shinto okay. as well in that case. I, I couldn't say about Chinese. Um, just going to, just go, going back to the, um, to the strains as well, just for a second. Um, we may talk about it, 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 it later, but but um, the this this sort of journey has taken me to, to several countries, including North Korea. And the last time I was in North Korea, I met a guy who knew a lot about 
mugwort is a big deal in North, the plant the mugwort plant is a big deal in culture in korean culture it's part of its sort of origin myth um and and he he told me that i th i am this top of my head but i think he said there were 35 different strains of mugwort that grew in the korean peninsula so it it tells wow. you that the, the, yeah there's there's a fair amount to pick from and actually the, the the vulgaris that grows in this country here in the uk Actually, if you see them, you, you, you can come across a, like a stand of them from time to time. And uh, when you look at them, you think, well, that one looks a little bit different to that one. Even when they're growing together, there seem to be different, different, mildly different strains growing together. I'm sure we could spend hours talking about the finer details of Moxa, but I also want to get into your personal work and journey. Can you talk about what you are and have been for years doing with moxibustion and places such as Africa and the conditions you're trying to treat with it. Sure. Okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give you a bit of background context first, maybe about my own sort of acumoxa journey. So I originally trained as an acupuncturist here in the UK uh, in what I describe as the, the, the Worsley school sort of thing, which is, um, it's often popularly known as five element acupuncture. Um, and we learned a moxa technique. It was regard, moxa was regarded as a powerful treatment, but it was very, very, very um, ill understood. And actually the, the, the teaching, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, the, the teaching of it was very limited, very, very limited. So beyond, beyond having this understanding, oh, moxa is very powerful therapy. Basically there wasn't an awful lot more in them in the in the um uh, you know in, in what we graduated with sort of thing um and i very quickly got interested in in japanese acupuncture and japanese moxa the reason initially for the japanese interest was because japanese acu acupuncture per se is very delicate very light and very patient friendly compared to a lot of other techniques acupuncture techniques um and uh, you know, I, I basically, I'm not in the business of hurting patients if I can avoid them. So I like this idea, but very quickly started to understand that I, that the moxa was very was understood in a very different way in the modern era in Japan than it is in the modern era in, in China, um, and got got very interested in. So I I, I sort of set myself down a, a path of of learning uh, Japanese styles of practice, techniques and things, very heavily uh, led by, by Stephen Burge, who certainly is one of the leading authorities in the West on, 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 um, on Japanese acumoxa, and also a, a, a researcher as well, a leading researcher, I'd say, in, in, in acupuncture generally. So, uh, and as part of that process, I learned these techniques, which are specifically Japanese, using more refined Japanese moxa, um, but I still found found them fairly, fairly. I didn't use them a lot because it's a bit weird for patients if they come to you with acupuncture and then you start burning things on their skin. It, they have the potential to get a little bit freaked out, quite understandably, I think. So it was, certainly wasn't my immediate default. Anyway, I'm I'm going to go around this in quite a long way, so I, I hope I hope you'll bear with me. So take we, your time. Okay. Well, whenever. Uh, 2003, four, maybe something like that. Um, I enrolled on some advanced 
Toyari training. Toyari is basically a needling, needling uh, technique, very, very delicate, non-insertive needling technique. And I, I, I'd, I'd done some basic training in it and, and then re-enrolled on some advanced training, which was taking place in, in Amsterdam. We, we attended three weekends a, a year over two years. And in the very first weekend, um, I went out for a drink with a very good friend of mine who I originally trained with, Jenny Craig. And she had been working in uh, Sri Lanka and in India, in Sri Lanka with, with tsunami survivors and in India with Tibetan refugees in a most God, God-forsaken spot. Um, uh, and had been using acupuncture and moxa with them. And Jenny had been born and not been born, I beg your pardon. Jenny had grown up in Africa, in Malawi and Zambia. So, and I think if you've spent any time in Africa, it gets underneath your nails, basically, and it doesn't, it really doesn't shift. And she's, she, as I say, we're sitting, out, we're sitting outside in his cafe having a beer. And she said, I want to do some work. I've seen what it can do in these conditions, what acupuncture can do. I want to do some work in Africa. And would I be interested, personally, me? So I said, no, <laughs> um, and not because I didn't think it was a good idea, it was, but, but, it was, but, but really because I had this instinctive uh, response that it's, it's a great thing to do. I've got nothing against the principle of it, but the problem is you get on a plane, you go into these places, you do your treatments, you see some astonishing results that you don't see in your normal day-to-day -day practice, or certainly I don't. And then you get on the plane, you go home again. And what have you left behind? You've not really left behind anything, but some pretty astonishing memories on both parties, both on the therapists who've gone in and also on the people who, you know, you, you, in any of these projects, you hear about people who basically come in with walking sticks and walk out without them. And so the, the responses do seem to be dramatic. So basically, what's the point if they're working, walking with a walking stick a month later again, what's the point it's who's getting the maximum benefit of it and I, I think it's arguable you could say the people who've come in on the airplane have gotten a more benefit because they're still talking about it 15 years later like i am so uh, and so I, that's the reason why i declined it and, and and went nowhere further with it and then the, the end of the following year when we we're at literally at our last weekend as is often the case you go out for a drink on the last the last, you know, if it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you go out for a drink on the Saturday night and probably drink a little bit too much. In this case, it was a group of us and we were drinking. Stephen Birch was at the end of the table, funny enough. And uh, we were drinking some very expensive single malt whiskey. And uh, Jenny's much more sensible than I am. So she wasn't, but I was. And I, I, I let's just say that um, I was a little bit worse for wear. And we would, um, this subject came up again. And at this point, all of a sudden, this light bulb went off in my head and said, yeah, but Jenny, we could do it with Moxa because Moxa is so simple. The therapy is simple. The techniques are simple. The material is simple. And I had this kind of like, you know, because I was like a bit off on one, you know, I said, we could get a lorry. We could go from a village to village, blah, you know, and all this stuff. And <laughs> the, the, truth, the truth of the matter is, that night I was pretty sick. And, but I woke up the following morning and I could remember everything about this conversation. And I'm thinking, what the hell are you gonna do with this now? This idea is, it's, it's real, you know? And 
So very sensitively, I broached it with me, Jenny, we were back in the back in the classroom sort of thing. And I said, Jenny, do you remember what we were talking about last night? And of course she did, because she hadn't had all the whiskey. And I said, well, what the hell are we going to do with it? <laughs> so we basically there and then said we committed to it. We said, we're going to have a, let's have a look at it. So we, we flew home. She lives in Scotland. I live down here. And, uh, and so we started picking it apart and deciding what we could and what we couldn't do with it. And, we, and then we started making some connections and the connections became more and more plausible and also more and more exciting. And that probably basically I'm leading you here a little bit, but that, that took us to tuberculosis which we knew very little about at that stage. So that's where it originated. Well, my next question, I think, is kind of an obvious one. Let's go on with the story. Where did you guys go next? Well, How did you put well, all of this together and well, pull it the, off? The, one, one of the things was that, and this is courtesy of, of Stephen Burge, was the right in the very early days when I first studied the, the, the these Japanese techniques with him, and he was saying about how, you know, it, it had been used for treating this and that and the other. And one of the things he threw out in the classroom, and this would have been back in probably about 2002, I should think. He said, uh, he said TB was used for, um, Moxa was used for treating TB in Japan in the 1930s, successfully. And it's just what you get told lots of things in classrooms, and most of it goes in one ear and out the other, in my experience. But this was one something that lodged in my brain. And... So one of the things that came out of the discussions with Jenny is, you know, well, it was used in, in Japan. We didn't know anything about how much TB there was in Japan or anything like that, nor did we have any idea whether there was much TB in Africa at the time, because, you know, in, in, in the developed world, TB is, is it's not, certainly not eradicated, but it's, it's, it's a minor public health issue compared to what it is in other parts of the world. But the one thing I did know was I knew that TB, this would have been after, after having, having learned about this from Steve Birch, but I didn't make the, make the connection still. One of the things I did know from reading about uh, um, global health in probably uh, two or three years later was about TB becoming drug resistant. So I had an idea that, yeah, TB is drug resistant. So basically, the, the, the connection, the, the first connection was, you know, we could use this, we could use this therapy in a resource poor environment. And the second was, oh my God, if there's TB there uh, and it's drug resistant, well, if it was being used in Japan in the 1930s when there were no drugs, then surely to God it could be used today when the drugs aren't working, which seems a logical question to, 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 to pose. So then our next question to ourselves, well, how much TB is there in Africa? And when, when we looked, it was, I'm still shocked by it. I'm still shocked by it. It is, there is an appalling amount of TB in Africa, exacerbated partly by the HIV epidemic there, because HIV stokes TB. Most people in Africa who die of, of from, um, who die HIV infected, in other words, HIV positive, most of them die of tuberculosis because it actually accelerates tuberculosis in a, in a, a pretty, pretty awful way. But the other reason is because basically nobody has given a damn about the TB control in most of the developing world ever since the 1970s, because 
all the lung specialists have basically switched from tuberculosis, which was the big deal in the, in the middle part of the 20th century. How do we control TB? They, and they managed to do that. And they switched from that to lung cancer because they were seeing fewer and fewer TB cases and more and more lung cancer cases. So they basically, literally all the conferences, uh, I'm, I'm gonna generalize here, but all, all the lung conferences, specialist lung conferences prior to 1960 would have been on tuberculosis. All the lung conferences post 1960 would have been on lung cancer. Interestingly, it's starting to reverse again. In fact, it's probably already has reversed again because the switch now, finally, the focus of, of Western medicine, for want of a better word, has woken up to the fact that basically this is one massive, massive mistake. They basically switched off on TB and allowed TB to fester at the worst places it could possibly have festered and become drug resistant. So, so, the, so basically that was our, our question was, well, um, how much, how much MDR TB is there? This is multi-drug resistant TB. How much MDR TB is there in Africa? And when we look, we could find hardly any. But then we started to understand then the world of TB, which is well, basically there's hardly any book because nobody's looking for it. Because if you look for it, you develop a problem that you don't want to confront. So the best thing to do is pretend there isn't any. So the, the, the world has been waking up to drug resistant TB very, very, very slowly. And it's way ahead of the game now. So, and what we found was there was, uh, it, TB is a very complex disease. Um, so I, I, if I go into it, I'll go into it probably too deeply, but um, it exists in different states. I probably will end up referring to, to these states more, but you've got a latent state, which is an infection. Your body basically recognizes it's got an infection, but can't eradicate it. So it basically walls off the infection in the lungs. It's the general pattern and it'll stay there, likely for the duration of your life. But if it's given an opportunity, by HIV, for instance, or by a nasty flu, or by a chemotherapy episode, or by a major stress episode that affects your immune system, then it breaks out and then becomes what they call reactivated disease. And that's where it becomes dangerous. Now, in the bad old days, uh, in, um, in, in, in North America, I'm sure, as well as, as, um, as in Europe, uh, in the industrialized, in the industrializing age, so as the industrial revolution developed and, and um, conditions in cities were particularly appalling, probably about 80% of the population was infected latently with TB. Of them, probably 10% would, would go on to develop the disease. Could, might have been a bit more. I think in Europe at the turn of the 20th century, the start of the 20th century, one in five deaths were from TB. So it's a very, very dangerous disease and was well, well, you know, experience in every family would have had a TB episode, uh, a story, you know. We're talking about the different states of the disease. So you've got these two principal states. One is latent and one is activated. Now, uh, when we were looking for the, the, we were looking for estimates that were being published and things. And the interesting thing was one of the estimates that was getting talked about in regards of African the African population was in the sub-Sahara. -sub Again, they were talking about this same thing. 80%, 80% of sub-Saharan Africans were estimated to be infected with tuberculosis. So that's four out of five people if you pass them in the street. That's an astonishing amount of people when you think about it. Now, in I would guess, my guess would be in British Columbia or here in the UK, 
the probability of passing somebody in the street who's lately infected with TB is probably pretty small. But in 2000, just to give this an, an, a perspective, a global perspective, in 2016, Imperial College London experts on epidemiology, they've been getting a lot of publicity and a lot of flack recently with the, with the coronavirus epidemic, but they re-estimated the global uh, percentage of the population, the global population latently infected with TB, and they, they calculate it as being 25%. That's 1.7 billion people with this disease as we speak. That's an enormous amount of people. How many of them are drug resistant? We haven't got a clue. Not a clue. Uh, but there's, there's going to be millions of them. How many of them will develop the disease? Again, we haven't got a clue. And that's largely dependent on, I would say, socioeconomic fortune. If the poorer they are, the more likely they're going to, they, that, that, as the disease will break out. So then, so we've got, we've got the latent infection, we've got the reactivated infection. The reactivated infection is dangerous. The latent infection is actually perfectly safe because it doesn't do anything to you. But within the reactivated part, you've got this idea of the component of the disease which is susceptible to the TB drugs and the component of the disease that isn't susceptible to the TB drugs. And that has been slowly growing. Everything with TB works very slowly and very much in opposite to something like Ebola or, or the coronavirus, which work very quickly. This is a very, very slow growing disease. But because of that, it's inexorable. You don't slow it down very easily. You don't stop it easily. You're looking, you've got to be looking five, 10 years down the track. So, so we realize, we recognize that this is a massive problem in Africa. It has been very, very poorly addressed. And it's got a bit better in the last few years, to be fair, it's got a bit better. Um, but the more you looked, the more we looked at it, the more awful this, the, 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 whole the whole world of TB became, the, the more neglect there, there it became evident, the more poor practice became evident, the more ineffective treatment became evident. And so we realized that, that you know, well, maybe there is something here. So, so our, our, our goal, I'll, I'll keep rolling if that's okay. Our goal was, there's no point just doing simple project work here. There, there is only one reason to do this, and this is to try and expose evidence. Because if we can expose good evidence, then this treatment, if it can be effective at all, can be effective at a scale which would make a difference. Whether that's in the Indian subcontinent, whether that's in Africa, whether that's in China, whether that's in Indonesia, wherever there's a lot of TB, this could be used. So we've attempted right from the start to play it by bioscientific rules, step by step, systematic research to try and expose evidence. And that has been the biggest challenge of all, to be honest. Once you started to realize the prevalence of TB, and you, it sounds like you guys were getting quite excited about doing something with that. And frightened. Did you and next frightened. develop and frightened? <laughs> did you next develop a treatment protocol and test that out back home, or did you go put your boots on the ground in Africa and and see what you could figure out there? No. So our first, because we're trying to do this systematically, our first step was to try and you I'm sure with your students the first thing you do is your literary literary review that's literature review you call it don't you so basically where do we go for our literature review Japan neither of us speak Japanese but we do have 
contacts that can that could help us get in there but um so then we started looking at this so-called story 1930s they were using it for 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 treating tb so where's the evidence well of course it's all documentary evidence and then we came across one guy uh his name is dr dr hara dr shimatara hara who died in the 1980s and amazing man extraordinary man who'd been treating tuberculosis with moxa in japan through this critical period and had written about it and had conducted some very interesting research um, including on animals with scientific data behind it and to this day the research is is it uses pure scientific method and basically he the, the, the evidence is quite compelling that it creates this creates an immunological effect and that immunological effect probably is how the moxotherapy seemed to be effective for his patients which he was treating quite extensively he had his, he had his own um uh his own hospital and and um so that was our first real bingo we've got some evidence it was in it was in a, a fairly arcane cha uh, japanese form but we were <clears throat> so we realized we we're onto something we got something to work with <clears throat> so basically we adapted his protocol and his protocol was was had a had a particular attraction to it because it was designed to be easy to use for the average layperson. It wasn't designed for acupuncturists to be used. It was a, a designed for people to use on themselves and for family members to use it. And that was exactly what we wanted. So that was that was our starting point. And, and so slowly familiarizing ourselves with that, finding as much as evidence as we could from more recent Japanese F, uh, um, research um, evidence, which was mixed, I have to say, um, and there were reasons for that. Uh, and so we had no, we had, we didn't have a kind of like, you know, a smoking gun that would tell us anything, but we had plenty of, of contributory data that was telling us that there's a good chance this is going to have some effect. And so it's time to put your neck on a block and find out. Um, so then we, then we took ourselves at that point, we took ourselves, uh, first of all, to Uganda to, to, with the with the goal first of all of just finding two things out one is would would um health workers and their patients accept this as a practice at all bearing in mind is completely different culture and very very different culture um east african culture to to east asian culture extremely screen different ethnicity but also very different culture so would would they would they uh accept the idea of using this and secondly would they do it in a way which was safe and so that was our first question we weren't interested in efficacy at that point we were just interested in acceptability and and safety aspects and we got we we got an answer of yes to, to both of those questions very quickly um and and then we we took the next step which was okay well let's try and design a pilot study of our own and try and put this to the test with TB patients and see what happens. So that was our next step. And, and so it, it was, you know, I, I, I can look myself in the mirror and say, we've, we've tried to do this as safely, as safely and as systematically as we possibly could at every step of the way. Um, 
I can describe if you want, I'll go into the sort of the, the steps we took in terms of the pilot studies and then finally into a proper RCT if you want, but unless you want to ask another sure. question. Um, no. Is that okay? I so, have other questions, but go on. Uh, okay, so so our, the, the first opportunity we got was to develop this pilot study, which was in Kampala. In two, We started off in two health centers, TB centers, in two health centers in downtown Kampala. And we left them, we trained some health workers. The whole idea of this was we don't do the treatment. So this was not like this original idea of fly in, do the treatment, fly out. No, no, no. We're going to train people. Uh, and that was, uh, that was our next thing is, could we effectively train people? Uh, that was our next question. So we effectively trained people very easily. We did two days of training and we were leaving people perfectly competent. We could have done it in a day if we wanted to, but we'd rather take our time, get to know people as well. Um, so we did, we did that and then we left Moxa behind and got back on the plane and we came back and we tried to monitor from away and we just said, you know, what we want you to do is you, you're, you're working in a government TV program. So we're gonna, you're going to be adding this on and see what happens with these patients. And we, were started, we started to get a, uh, a far from ideal, far from ideal quality of reporting, but the actual the actual message we were getting was, I never forget the one one thing we got from from our one of our sort of key people there, people there, on a phone line, and the, and she she just said, Marlene, it works, and it was kind of like it's one of these things that it's just it's just going to stay with me till the day I die. Marlene, it works, and we got reports that they were treated some people who had very advanced TB who were expected to die and they hadn't died, so at that point it's like okay. I think we've got to stick with this now. We've really got to go for it. One of the one of the projects in in one of the health centres faltered because the health workers weren't as committed as we want, we needed. So we dropped that one completely, focused on the other one, and we went back about every four months for about eighteen months, I guess, just midwifing this along, and then we took it to South Africa. Um, and we took it to South Africa because they have a better better medical infrastructure there, and also they've got much more drug resistant TB. At least they knew they've got drug much more because they were testing for it. Some frightening amounts of drug resistant TB in some places. So we knew there we would come across diagnosed drug resistant TB in Uganda at the time we were getting no diagnosed but we were getting patients who weren't responding to the treatment to the drug treatment but they weren't clinically diagnosed so we couldn't say anything about them in in South Africa we knew we would encounter patients which have been clinically diagnosed as being drug resistant so that was much more exciting and also again more frightening and also they had higher rates of HIV co-infection and the HIV angle was very important because of course they hadn't had HIV in Japan when they were using this treatment so a fundamental question was a would moxa be safe with hiv patients and b would the hiv co-infected patients which could be as many as 40 percent of the tb patients and possibly more in some circumstances would they respond similarly to just straight tb patients or would it be dangerous for them because they're so immune compromised and we were getting positive feedback um, in this respect and we did work in two townships in South Africa. Again, one, one because of the quality of the health workers tended to falter, 
that was in a more rural township but we did one in a in a pretty tough township in cape town and they got some great results there really great results and then we got uh, so that so we've got th basically we've got pilot study results from Uganda, pilot study results from South Africa, and they were basically telling us the same thing. This was accepted by the health workers, accepted by the patients. It was safe. We had no, no stories. Of course, they may not tell us the, the stories they don't want us to hear, and we accepted that. But there were no stories of adverse events. There were good stories, dramatic stories. It, they were isolated, but overall, the, 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 the feedback was always good. But in, in both cases, the data collecting was haphazard at best. So we, we could publish only in a very limited way on it. So we needed to, to put together a proper study. And this is, then we're talking about something that is far, far more challenging. And we, there we got very, very lucky in South Africa. And Jenny was in South Africa. Jenny had got relatives in South Africa. So she, she, she had more of an angle on the South African connections. And she had a stepmother in South Africa who took her to a some sort of drinks party in the University of with some some her stepmother had been working in the University of Cape Town, which is that's like like the University of British Columbia in South Africa. It's the top university in South Africa. And um and because she'd worked there in some capacity she'd worked there. So basically Jenny she introduced Jenny to this guy who was a, a retired professor in medicine in in um in the university of, of cape town and and said you want to, jenny you want to talk to this guy blah 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 and, and so jenny explained what we've been doing he understood about tb because if you work in the medical field in south africa you certainly will know much more about tb than you will in certainly in here in the uk and um and he said, oh, you don't want to do this in South Africa. The bureaucracy is too big. You'll have to, the, 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 the hurdles you'll have to jump over will be too high for you. And it'll be too expensive. But you want to go back to Uganda because I've got an, an ex-PhD student there who's very interested in traditional medicines. And I'll give you an introduction. So we went back to Uganda. I mean, but it's, this is like, it's almost like we've come back home sort of thing. And, uh, and this guy gets us an introduction to this guy who invites us to do a presentation to him and his colleagues at Makerere University. Makerere University is the best university in East Africa, not just in Uganda, but in East Africa. So we were, we were, we were shooting high and we were tended to be hitting the target by, by happenstance, not by design, but we've just seemed to be getting there. And so we did this very nervously. We did this presentation to him and a bunch of colleagues, one of whom walked out in the middle of it. So it certainly wasn't received unanimously in a positive way. But at the end of it, uh, he announced that he would want to do a pilot study of their own. They would fund. No, we, we would fund the pilot study. After that, don't worry, we'll, 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 if, we, we get, if we get inter, inter, if we get interesting results, we'll do an RCTBI, do a randomized control trial. Well, we, this was, you know, we've done it. I seem to remember you and I were connecting at about this time. At about that time. Because you yeah, were telling yeah. me about this, yeah. this yeah. potential yeah. study. Yeah. That'd be it. So we come back here and uh, as we've learned time and time again with engagement with not just people, not just contacts in Africa, but contacts all over is when you're not face to face with them, it gets put yeah. in the files. <laughs> So, and trying to push people yeah. from a distance is not easy. Um, 
so basically we tried to push we tried to push and then we got the news ah we're starting an rct and uh, well hang on a sec we thought we were doing we <laughs> thought we were funding a pilot study here no 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 and what he'd done is he'd gone down to the health health center where we've been working had interviewed the health workers there and thought there's no point doing a pilot study of our own. The pilot study's done. So let's just get straight into it. All of a sudden, our budget demand had just went through the roof. <laughs> so they designed the study mm -hmm. and we collected the money for it. It was very it was very much done on the cheap. They were very reasonable in terms of negotiating the costs and things. And then we started the study and it rolled out. It, it, as, as almost all studies do, I have since learned, I didn't know at the time, it rolled out much longer than it meant to have done, which meant some of the costs got extended because any staff costs got tripled. Um, but yeah, but wow. thankfully in Uganda, the staff costs actually are remarkably cheap. But, um, but at the end of it, we got some very, very interesting results. But then there's a big but, our interest is not in TB itself, this drug susceptible component, because that can by definition be treated with the TB drugs, which are cheap and are effective if used properly. We're interested in the component of the, of the, of the epidemic or the pandemic that doesn't respond to the TB drugs, but unfortunately isn't diagnosed in most cases. So, because those are the ones where the drugs are too expensive and also when if and the available drugs that are used are very ineffective and the side effects are pretty bloody horrific to be honest so we couldn't ethically develop the first study using anybody who was clinically diagnosed as multi-drug resistant the ethics quite rightly the ethics board of Macquarie university wouldn't countenance it because we had too little data on that so they said, no, you've got to do it on ordinary TB cases. And if you, if you, in the course of the, the therapy, you diagnose a patient as being drug resistant, you've got to exclude them from the data, which was tough because that weren't, those weren't the, the cohort of patients that we wanted to look at. But if that's the way to go, we go, because we're doing this systematically, we're doing it properly. So we're quite happy to go along with that. So the, because of that, we knew that the results we were going to get were going to be good with the drug. We, what we were doing, the study was designed along the following lines. Patients enrolled, newly diagnosed, they were put on TB drugs and half of them were put on TB drugs and MOXA. So it was an adjunctive treatment, which is fine. There's no problem with that at all either. But the benefit that we were ever gonna get off the TB, off, the, off these patients with the MOXA was only gonna be marginal because they should have had an 80% success rate anyway. So we were never going we were never going right. to get a decent margin. We got a margin, statistically significant, but it wasn't dramatic because it couldn't be. If we were to get 100 percent, yeah, that would have been good, but we didn't get 100 percent. Although we also enrolled patients who were HIV, HIV positive as well, and we kept their data in a separate cohort, and we got 100 percent success in that, in that cohort. Yeah. So that, really? so we'd got for the first time ever, we'd got clinical data on HIV and TB using MOXA. And also I have to say, as far as I know, no study anywhere has ever looked at using MOXA for TB in patient cases, in human cases, in animals they have, but not in, in, in humans. So the, we were, we were 
at that point, well, we can say quite happily that we were breaking new ground, but it told us nothing about MDRTB. But with this data, which we published in a peer reviewed journal, we put it out there with discussion and it had developed discussion, which was basically saying, if this applies to drug resistant TB as well, and we think it works by stimulating the host immune system to respond, this wasn't an, an allopathic treatment. This is, a, this is an, an, an endemic treatment in a way that you're working, you're making the body do its job properly and fight back the disease along with the drugs. Now, if we can do that with when the drugs are working, then could we do that with a, with a bigger dose of moxa when the drugs aren't working? And if we can, then wow, because this is such a huge, huge public health threat, um, MDRTB. I could go on forever on that one. So I'm just beyond saying it's a huge public global health threat. So, so basically we, we publish our paper and then we bandy it around to people saying, well, you know, do you want to get, do you know, would you be interested? Would you interest in, and our, our, our budget all the way through has been very, very, very modest. And, and we, we found no interest at all anywhere apart from one particular quarter including in japan apart from one quarter of the world or one little country one tiny little country in one corner of the world which was the democratic people's republic of korea otherwise known as north korea and so it's like okay well if this is going to take us there we go so and the reason why they're interested is because they have a massive tb problem because they have an undernourished and very unhealthy population and their management sorry did you well i just before we go into that because i really want to learn about this but before we leave africa if the drugs weren't mm. working did they have any other therapies that were working and if not what was the resistance to the moxa or was the moxa being used, but just not in a clinical yeah. state? Yeah, we, had, we hadn't got the moxa at a stage where anybody would take it on. And we hadn't got the money. I think, I think if, we were, if we were a big NGO, uh, then basically we would have been able to set up projects and people would have welcomed us and we'd have been driving around in big white Land Rovers with Mox Africa I mean, you know, that's how these things work. A, a yeah. proper NGO. As it was, we were, we were on the back of little motorbikes. We were, we were on, you know, we were shared, sharing with 14-seater little high-ace vans and things, you know. That was our way of getting around. So, so, and so yeah. we had no credibility in the way that, that others did. And, it, and the, the truth of the matter was, and, and this, is, this is no success story, is everywhere where we worked, we were leaving Mox behind and leaving skills behind to use it. And in every case, without us going back regularly, providing whatever it is, that human dynamic, the things just petered out. And they did, they petered out. We've done, we cannot claim any success at all in project work. I'm ashamed to say, and I'm very much afraid to say, I can't say that we can claim any success in project work, but I can, say that we can claim success in research work so it, it wasn't a self-sustaining project because we couldn't put money right. into these things because we hadn't got the money so and without the money yeah. they just it just you know there was something else that was demanding their attention so it stopped so, so that answers okay. that question as best i can yeah 
Sure. So on the North Korea, and if at some point you can give a brief overview of the protocol. Yeah, okay, okay. That would well, be great. Uh, let me, of, of let the me stick the protocol. protocol first. So Dr. Hara's protocol is very simple. Uh, moxa, uh, these are very, very tiny moxicones, like rice grain moxicones. We call them half grace rain because we want people to do them as small as we can. Burnt, you you basically light them with a, with a, with a, what, what I call a taper. I don't know what you call it, in, like an incense stick. Yeah. And uh, and so they smolder down. You get a pinch, a very short pinch of heat. As it's as you feel the heat, you put it out, and then you burn another one on top of that, another one on top of that. Maximum of seven cones on each point. So Dr. Hara's protocol okay. basically was used stomach thirty six two points on the on the leg, which are you know very widely used moxa points anyway, and he used seven points on the lower back, just over the sacrum and just above the sacrum. They're not, they're not clinical, they're not classic acupuncture points. He mapped them out using a, using a, um, a triangle. Um, so that you, you, so that actually some of the triangle we could fall on, on points that we would say is on the line of the, the, the bladder through the, the bladder channel through the sacrum. But and probably a couple of them would, generally speaking, fall on what we might describe as acupuncture points. Often they're tender to palpation, interestingly enough, in sicker people. So basically, these ones are much harder to do because the patient couldn't do them on themselves. Stomach 36 patient, which is very, very empowering, patient can do something for themselves. But what we found in the pilot studies, both in Uganda and in South Africa, was that patients basically who were looking, who were treating themselves, failed to get family support or any carer support to do these patient, these points on the back. And yet, despite that, if they were getting TB drugs, they were still doing remarkably well. So better than expected. So the, just by doing stomach 36. So our conclusion for that was that stomach 36 plainly is a powerful point. And we could get away with just stomach 36 and get a measurable response and get patients to do it in the in the randomized control trial in, in, in Uganda. But if we asked them to do the points on the lower back, the likelihood is we'd have a high, high patient dropout rate and then we'll have no results at all. And it may not give us that much better data anyway. So basically let's just stick with stomach 36. So that's what we did for the RCT. Now, wow. And how, every day, how often? Every day. And the, okay, yeah, seven cones yeah. every day. They build day. up. You start them off with, if the patient was very sick, we'd, we'd just start with one cone on each point. If they were, if they were, um, so average, it would be three points to start with. A couple of weeks in, go up to five points, and then a couple of weeks further down the road, just to seven, just to make sure. They'd be coming back to pick up their TB drugs. So when they came back, check the points, get the health works, check the points, so they look like they're in the right place. Are there any blistering? Because we don't want blistering. So, by points you mean seven up to seven, seven cones, cones is that what yeah. you mean yeah so it'd be 14 yeah. cones a day but building up to so that right. was to the rct now what we knew was with the drug resistant cases they won't have the benefit of the drugs to support them so we're going to need the bigger dosage so in what so when we went to north korea we knew we were going to have to pull up. We, whether we, wherever we went with drug resistant TB, we knew we were more now in Dr. Hara's era of 1930s. There's no TB drugs. Assume that drugs aren't working, then we're going to need these points on the lower back. 
So they, so in their case, they use points on the lower back all the time for their for their treatment of drug resistant cases, and in their they they embraced it straight away. Very very smoky the people there were, very impressive, um, and they said, well we'll start we'll start two studies, leave it to us, you can go home now. Um, we left again. We left the moxa because their their moxa their moxa tradition in North Korea was actually very very. I'm going to call it primitive. That's the wrong word. Very basic and very aggressive. So the the, the moxa they used was was less refined, and the techniques they used were very aggressive. So they're so you know deliberately creating blisters amongst other things. So the people of North Korea that we encountered when you started talking about moxa, their their eyes would roll a little bit. It's like, oh my god, I don't want that. The it's interesting today in the South, in the in in the Republic of Korea, in South Korea, there is quite a strong tradition of using small cone direct moxa, like rice grain moxa, but it's been actually directly taken from the Japanese. It's not an endemic Korean treatment. I'm pretty confident in saying that. Some Koreans may take offence, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. So, so we had to educate them for no better word in the different way of using moxa in the different refinements and 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 in the different um uh yeah just basically in the different techniques we left it with them because they picked it up very very well and we and they said they're going to do two studies and uh without with very little invitation they they took this on and i think again the reason for that was because they know they're in trouble their drug supply is very intermittent. They're very, very badly supported by the West, for a better word, by the Global Fund for TB, HIV and Malaria. Very, very badly supported and pretty badly supported by the WHO as well. And as I say, they have an undernourished population which is very, very vulnerable to tuberculosis. And their resources are frighteningly limited. So and they and because of that they 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 they're open to you know any any port in a storm sort of thing so the two studies were we're going to we're going to we've got these mdr cases we know they're mdr and they're in sanatorium so we can we can we've got total control of them believe me they have as they have total control over a lot of people in north korea so so basically <laughs> ethics approval no we don't need ethics <laughs> approval so they did their study and they looked at it with the whole protocol done daily by the technicians in the in the in the sanatoria and they could monitor the, the the results and the second study was looking at latent tb cases just using stomach 36 to see whether if they used it it would uh reduce cases of disease developing in other words it would it would fortify the immune system in the patients enough that the TB wouldn't break out. And so that one was the longest study. So we got the results of the first study back first, the MDR cases. Um, we'd, gone to, we'd gone to North Korea, two of us, in the middle of winter. It was frighteningly cold. And we, they, <laughs> they kept us waiting for four days before they, they, they took us. Yeah, honestly. Oh. And then, they, and then they, they gave us their presentation and it was, oh my God they've got some um, extraordinary results. So um, wow. the results they got, I've, I've got a piece of paper here, so because I thought I'd better get this ready because I, I don't refer to this too often. And, and, and COVID has taken a lot of my attention on. But basically, 
the first thing they got was they had a significant improvement in symptoms. There's lots of symptoms from, from TB, coughing, sweats, all sorts of things. The significant improvements, um, uh, there were significant improvements and those improvements came in much faster. So the MOCs seemed to be doing something quite considerable to their experience of the disease. So that was significant in itself from the patient's perspective. But the second thing is the results they got, they got 60% successful results with their non-MOXA patients, and they got 83% with their MOXA patients. Now that's a significant difference. Wow, yeah. that's very good. And mm -hmm. the MOXA patients, they put on an average, put on weight of an average, because um, TB is a wasting disease. It, was, it used to be called consumption for, for that exact reason. You disappear in front of your yeah. eyes over, over months and years. So the TB, the MOXA patients put on an average of two and a half kilograms during the treatment. Um, and the really? no MOXA patients lost just over one kilogram in weight average. So wow. there's these, all these components coming together saying, oh my God, we've got something here. And I remember coming back on the flight thinking, we've cracked it. All we've got to do is get this data published. Well, of course, nobody wanted to touch it with a barge pole because it's North Korean. We could talk about yeah. it, but we couldn't get it published. The North <laughs> Koreans said you can share it any which way you want. You can, you know, as far as we're concerned, you can share it. So we talked to people and basically said, we've got this data. We need, we, now we really urgently need to get this tested. And we've had to date no success in that respect. So we're, we're still at square one. Meanwhile, meanwhile, mm. there was a second study and I went back the last time I went back there. Uh, with they, again, they kept me waiting for, for another four days, I think it was, before they, <laughs> before they, and with this one, they, what they were doing, they were comparing, there's a single drug that they use this is the most widely used drug, which if you have, a, if you confirm with a latent TB infection, which you can confirm with the skin test, and that tells you, oh yeah, you've, 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 you've got some TB in your lungs. And you treat it with a single antibody. Normally with TB, you treat four drugs simultaneously for six months. That's for standard TB. Jeez. With drug resistant TB, yeah. you tend to take six for two years. It's a horrible for six two drugs. years. And wow. the, the, the side effects are, you, you're often left permanently deaf. I've heard specialists yeah. say 50% of people get left permanently deaf. Psychotic, not permanent. Uh, it's it's oh. horrible. But with the four drugs, the, this, the, 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 you get neuropathy, you, 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 get, you get some side effects, but they're not as bad, but with four drugs. But with the other one, you just take one drug, isoniazid. You take it for six to nine months. And with a bit of luck, it will clear you of your latent TB infection. So they had one group they were using isoniazid and one group using moxid stomach 36 and they compared them over a period of it's got to be 18 months i think i can't remember now off the top of my head to see how many in these groups they were confirmed latent infections and they expected a, a proportion of them to 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 convert to reactivated disease and what they found was when they gave me the data i was initially disappointed they said well there was no real difference between the two groups i'm thinking damn we didn't get the results we were hoping for. But then I realized afterwards, well, actually, that's a really good result because this is, this isoniazid yeah. is the approved, WHO approved method of treating latent tuberculosis. The only problem is, and this is the big catch, it gets a little bit technical, is the definition of multidrug resistant TB is that you are resistant to two drugs, one of which is called rifampicin, which is the most strongest TB drug, and the second is isoniazid. So if you're MDR-TB, mm -hmm. this preventative treatment 
won't work. And the kicker is that you can't test for latent TB to see whether it's drug resistant. So you can't know that somebody with latent TB is drug resistant. And there is no approved treatment that will effectively prevent TB currently approved that will, will effectively prevent TB in a drug resistant case. So we've, so as I was coming back on the plane, I was thinking, hang on a moment, slow down. You've, there is still something huge here, huge. Because if you can treat people, not just if they've got, a, if you've got a TB member in the family, MDRTB for the sake of argument, in the family, then you treat everybody around them with amoxa, then it could prevent their disease from breaking out. So it's like we've got two sets of data, both relating to drug resistant TB. And in the end, the only thing we've been able to do with it was we published, our, uh, we published it in, a, in a, another peer-reviewed journal, but it's a discussion, it's called an opinion piece. It's not a, a study report because we couldn't publish it, the data as a study report because it would never be accepted in a peer-reviewed journal because we hadn't got the hard data ourselves because it, the, the, neither study had ever got proper ethical approval. It hadn't been registered properly. So we were, we were very limited in what we could do. But having got it into a peer-reviewed journal, we think, okay, now we can go back to the same people again and say, let's have another look at this. And still today, to this moment, we've, we've got nothing. We've got, we've had... We've, got, we've had a series of exciting leads in other countries in Africa, in India. Uh, we've had contacts, exciting contacts in the, in the Gates Foundation. We've had exciting contacts in Médecins Sans Frontières. We've gone nowhere with any of them. Nowhere. Partners in health. Yeah. Um, so we're still, at, you know, we're still literally in the starting blocks, except that we've got We've got every reason to be running the race. And, and the, the right. money that it will take to do a proper study on drug-resistant cases is way beyond us. You know, it needs better. Well, what you have is, is all this evidence indicating something as simple as yeah. doing moxibustion yeah. on Susan Lee's Stomach 36 yeah. can have incredible benefits. Mm -hmm. What are those? What do you think is actually happening with that what is the physiological well, well, okay, process I'll go back by mox on stomach 36 okay. well i'll go back to the korean data and the korean data on the second study was that they discovered that the patients using moxa were tr were trending that was their word trending higher numbers of lymphocytes so lymphocytes okay. is a is a subcomponent of white blood cells and lymphocytes mm -hmm. are very good at uh protecting or, or defending the body against viruses, against cancer, some cancers, solid cancers, I'd say probably more than just saying cancer, um, and against tuberculosis. Um, not so not so so much against bacteria and TB is a bacteria, but, but TB is a peculiar bacteria. Um, so yeah. basically it's fortifying the immune system and we've got immunological evidence of that. It needs, it, that evidence needs strengthening, needs amplifying, yeah. um, and that's going to take money. But basically, that's how, that, that's how it looks like it works in one way or another, and that's partly from heat simulation and partly from this possible from this chemical absorption. We're creating a system, acupuncture, using MOX on these particular points is creating a systemic 
immunological effect. And, and that's slow, which means it's particularly appropriate to a slow burning disease like TB. It would not be pr probably appropriate at all for a disease like Ebola, I would say, because it's too fast moving. Okay. But it could yeah. be, and I would argue, which is a shame because I think we've missed our opportunities so far, but I would argue it could be very useful as a preventative therapy for a disease like SARS-CoV-2, like COVID, where you could build up yeah. the, the host immune system to a point where it will resist the worst of the disease. Yeah? Yeah. Have well, time and of course, we've... We've seen that with stomach 36 through all forms of therapy, acupuncture, acupressure, moxibustion. It yeah. does boost the immune system. It's what you're doing is basically a, a free treatment takes minutes has, I'm, I'm going to take a, a wild guess here and say zero side effects. Is that what yeah. you've seen? Yeah. Well, the, the only side effects are probably they'll sleep a bit better. They may feel better. They may Not have a terrible. better appetite. You know, awesome. these are really bad side effects. And the worst thing is they're going to end up with <laughs> the a worst scar. kind. Yeah, yeah. But they're going to end up on a scar on their leg, particularly with black skin. They'll end up on a scar on their leg. But my answer to that is, you know, well, take a look at your arm. Your arm's probably got a scar because it, it was inoculated and you've got a scar on your arm. It's a smallpox scar. You know, it's like big deal. Big deal. This is a killer disease. Untreated. We talk about a case, case fatality ratio or case fatality rate. With, with COVID, they reckon the case fatality rate is probably about 0.5 to 1% overall, if you include all the asymptomatic cases. So one in every 200 to 100 cases is, of infections is likely to die from the disease. That's not a very high case fatality ratio. TB untreated, 70%, probably 50 to 70%. More than one and in every two cases are gonna die when they're infected with TB if they can't get treatment. So that's what yes. happens if you've got drug-resistant TB and you can't get treatment. More than half of them are going to die. And in that process, they're going to infect a reasonable number of people again. Not as infectious as COVID, for sure. Nothing like, but infinitely more dangerous in the long term. Well, and as you said, it's a shame you didn't get to test this on the MDR-TB because my hunch is you're going to see similar results with that. And mm -hmm. as you said, this cocktail of four to yeah. six drugs is doing far more damage probably than it's doing good. Yeah. And so this is and, just and such a leaving, simple... Yeah. And, and he's leaving patients weaker, potentially, to a, secondary, to a, to a second infection. Because one of the things with TB, yeah. unlike measles, is it can, it'll happily reinfect you again. So you get a lot of cases that get reinfected and they blame it on, oh, you didn't take the drugs properly. No, they've just been reinfected. They've just been reinfected. Mm -hmm. I, we did a calculation based on, the, based on the, the, um, the North Korean data. So we did, a, we did this is for MDRTB, and the, 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 of the cases that are treated with what they call second line drugs, the current success rate is published by the WHO at 56%. That's probably about right. So with the, with the drugs, they're getting a 56% success rate. That's not very good by any, anybody's standards. Now, and with if a, I can stop you there for a second, yeah. with when you say a success rate, is, is this just at a success rate with TBR mark, or TB markers, but doesn't take into consideration all the side effects that you spoke of? No, 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 not at all, not at all. But that success rate would also 
physics side effects mean there's a very high dropout rate, very high dropout rate with, with treatment yeah. MDR, understandably, because people can't, can't tolerate it. Um, so th at the end of it, they can, they can categorically say that for every 100 cases that we started treatment, we've got 56 out the other end that we say we think we've got cured. But they will be weaker and subject to reinfection afterwards. Uh, not necessarily even from TB, but it could be from something else because their immune system will have taken a massive hit from this from this cocktail of drugs. Now, what we would say is for an extra cost of, and, and the, the average global cost for that, for the drugs, is $6,430 per patient, which is completely unaffordable in the developing world. Completely. Yeah. It's So basically... For an extra twenty to thirty dollars, which is all we'd say is a maximum amount of moxa you're going to need, twenty to thirty dollars, you could lift. If the if the North Korean data is 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 valid, you could lift that fifty six percent success rate to seventy nine percent. That's astonishing because yeah. that takes it drug is. resistance up to nearly the current existing global success rate for all cases of TB is 81%. That's the, that's the WHO's own data. So it takes the success rate for MDR-TB nearly to the current global success rate for all TB. Now, that's insane. It's so obvious, but we can't, we can't yeah. get the right philanthropist, the right whatever, to, to go, oh my God, we've got to test this further. We've got to test this further. These guys are probably, they're probably crackers. But if we don't do this, what are we missing? Yeah. You know? And I would love to see the test done where the MDR-TB is just treated with moxibustion and forget about the cocktail of drugs that are going to provide as, or cause, as you said, mm -hmm. lifelong debilitation mm -hmm. in some case. And it's, it's a situation where, in, where the drug might be worse than the disease itself. So if, if we could just get people to do this simple, yeah. free, non-toxic yeah. therapy yeah. that they can do on yeah. themselves with all these added yeah. benefits that you said yeah. of improved sleep and yeah. digestion. And, and everything with... Seems like a yeah, no-brainer. Everything with TB is a bit unbelievable, but there's a... As, um, so I, I need to substantiate things properly. There's a, there's a guy, we have a guy here, Lord Jim O'Neill, he's a very famous economist. I don't... You've heard of the... the what, do you, what do you call it? The, um, the uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the BRICS nations. Yeah? Have you heard Yes. Well, the, he yep. coined the phrase. Yep. He coined the term "BRICS nations." So he's a he's a world-renowned economist, and he was asked. We well, had a, our prime minister at the time, David Cameron, asked him to do this economic report on the impact of antimicrobial resistance, which is any any pathogen which is resistant to the to the drugs to treat it, which could include malaria, could include HIV, could include gonorrhea, whatever. So this guy. He got a, a team of economists, top team of economists, and they, they spent a couple of years working on it. And they published a report, I think in 2015-16, published this report. And they made some predictions about the total economic cost to the world from antimicrobial resistance as a big umbrella term, which would include multidrug resistant TB. Multidrug resistant TB is the only antimicrobial resistant infection which is airborne. It's the only one that you can catch by breathing the bug in. All the rest of them is going to be going to get it off contact from either from sexually transmitted disease from, from a mosquito or from touching something and then getting into your system somehow. So it's unique in that way. It also is by far the biggest component of death within the antimicrobial resistant whole. And 
he also did something which no epidemiologists have got the blooming courage to do, I think, which is to make a forecast of how many people are likely to die from MDRTB by 2050 if the fortunes don't change in this disease. And he forecast with the help of mathematicians, not epidemiologists, with the help of mathematicians, statisticians, he forecast that 75 million people will have died prematurely from MDR-TB by 2050, in the period between 2015 and 2050. Uh, that's a long period of time, but that's an enormous number of people. That is about the amount of people, total people, at the high end of estimates for death from World War II. It's staggering. And we're saying that something that costs a little 20 or $30 a piece could be done to slow that down. And if you can slow it down, if you can, if you can reduce any infection, you reduce the consequential infections from that person. You know, it's it, all of us now, yeah. uh, all of us are armchair epidemiologists because of COVID now. But, you know, we've been living in and dreaming nightmares about this for some time with MDRTB. It's, it's out there. It's not stopping. It's getting worse. Naturally, it's going to get worse because of COVID. There's no question about it because TB programs everywhere in TB endemic countries have been, I'm going to use the word, looted with their human and financial resources to help control COVID. So TB programs have just gone on to stop. All TB research has stopped and the TB drug supplies have got faltered as well. And if you falter a drug supply, you create more drug resistance. So everything's bad news for TB, but it's being swept under the carpet yet again um, while we confront the current pandemic, which is awful. I'm not trying to discount the, this, the gravity of where we are with, with this COVID-19 or 20 or 21 or whatever it's going to be, who knows, but, um, <laughs> or 22, God help us. But uh, yeah, so. Yeah. Well, Merlin, before we run out of time here, let's talk about the charity, the organization <clears throat> that you and Jenny have set up to do this work so people can, can learn more about it. So we, we founded it originally in 2008, I think, I think it was 2008 it was it was founded it was it was interesting because we we'd registered with there's a charity commission here in the uk you gotta register it so we went to them and of course they'd never heard of mox so they do some some googling on mox and they don't find much so they were a little bit resistant to it to start with that was one of the first hurdles we had to jump through but once we got it established then you know basically we've got some credibility um and the charity is still tiny it operates on a budget of about £20,000 a year total, um, all privately funded from wherever we can get some get the money. How much is that is Canadian dollars? I'm a bit rusty on Canadian dollars now. Uh, it's probably twice that. Yeah. About 40. Yeah. So it's not a lot of money to be running a, a, a project like this with, but that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Really. No particularly when most of it gets involved, when we could, was involved in flying. Um, you know, most of the money gets used in flights. So, right. so um, Well, and your white Land Cruisers. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're waiting for them. <laughs> oh, you don't have those yet, okay. <laughs> no, we're still working on that. <laughs> Actually, as well as that, in, in actual fact, it's worth, it's worth mentioning that because pre-COVID, we'd already decided We've got to do this a different way because we've become very, very alert to the, to the threat of, of the exact people 
who we're trying to look at in terms of their vulnerability and their interest from the, from this treatment. The same people are the are the most at risk from climate change, and so we were kind of already shifting a policy where okay, we don't do this by flying in and flying out anymore. We've got to find better ways to do this, and we're going to have to do it through. We didn't. I hadn't even heard of Zoom. It was Skype. In these, you know, it's kind of it's how much the world's changed in twelve months. But we'd already made a policy policy decision that we only get on a plane if we absolutely feel we have to, because, and this again spills out into the bigger discussion around this. There are uh, there is, uh, there is you know behind the current crisis, there's this bigger crisis which is climate change, and climate change is going to affect the very very same people who are most vulnerable to, to TB because of their impoverishment, because of their poor uh, health systems, because of their poor immune systems, because of their diet. And so basically they are going to suffer as more than the rest of us as climate change starts to bite, which it's already doing. We know it's already doing it now. There's no debate about that. And then now COVID's come along and basically it's exposed the thing really badly. You know, the discrepancy between a uh, 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 the, health, the health service in a developed country, which is struggling itself, compared to a country which it, which is it's got a poor health infrastructure, it exposes it for what it is. Is there is a massive chasm between the two? So therefore, Moxa, we come back. We come out of TB then, and we're thinking, well, what else can Moxa do? What else could Moxa do that's simple? That, and and then our thinking goes one step wider. Well, what else is there? We need simple therapies. We need the the, you know, there's a bunch of people in this world who need to get their act together. If anybody hears this, who's interested in this as an idea, you know, we've got all these fancy medical schools everywhere and they spend billions of dollars every year researching very high-tech medicine, very high-tech medical interventions that will never be of any use to the people who most need medical interventions, who are the poor, because they suffer from illness more than anybody else, because it's unaffordable. In fact, most of these things they're researching now are unaffordable even in richer countries. You know, this is the crisis of modern medicine. So in my opinion, there should be some sort of, like I call it normative legislation, international legislation forced on the world's richer countries by the WHO that says, okay, for every dollar that you spend on your high-tech medical research, you must spend 10 cents investigating low-tech alternative therapies. And you can do it in a, little, in a little shack across the road. You can have your fancy white glazed, you know, glass glazed um, a research institution on the high street, but just out around the corner behind the tennis courts, you're gonna have this shed and in there, you're going to be investigating low-tech, affordable, <laughs> adaptable solutions. It's not a crazy idea, is it? You know, no, it's not. Imagine it's a great idea. Young researchers, idealist people, you go, I'd, I'd like to have a go at that. And what would they find? Well, they're not going to find anything unless somebody starts doing it. So this is one of the reasons why I love the opportunity to talk about this sort of stuff, because if I can spark one person to start taking it, because we need this taken off us. We, we don't have the expertise. We don't have the technical expertise, you know, and we're getting older. You know, me and Jenny, we're pretty much the same age. We, you know, we, we started, we should be slowing down now, you know. So we're not, we're not, the, only, we're not the only people in Mox Africa. And we've got a couple of younger people who are fantastic. But, but, you know, it needs to be generated bottom up this. It needs to have the fire of the youth to, to be looking at this. Yeah. Um, well, there you said the name of it. Mox Africa is the name of your organization, which, as you said, you founded in 2008. You've done incredible work with 
but yes, please, anyone who's listening, who's interested in working with with Merlin and Jenny and, and helping out, please do reach out to them. And that website's at moxafrica.org. I, I know you mentioned via email yesterday that there's someone in Uganda who you're hoping to bring some attention and help to. Do you want to mention that here? I'd, I'd, we I'd love to. And, and I really, really appreciate the opportunity to do this because this is very, very close to my heart at the moment. So when we first went to Uganda, we relied on one particular individual, Mrs. Alan Magazi. Her name's Alan, but she's a Mrs. Um, and she organized everything on the ground for us. And, uh, and we've been in, we've stayed in touch ever since, but not regularly. And then she got in touch about a m- less than a month ago now to tell me that her daughter was in, that her youngest daughter was in really serious trouble. Her youngest daughter was, has some congenital issues that she was born with. And what basically it's turned out she's had to have a kidney removed recently. And she's got some gynecological issues and she's got some very serious problems with, with a congenital kyphosis. So it's distortion of the spine, which is in the process of creating paralysis and it's going to create permanent paralysis if nothing is done about it. They can't, they don't dare do the operation in Uganda because they say it's, it's way too risky. It will probably almost certainly leave her paralyzed if they attempt it. And she's managed to find a doctor in India who's prepared to take to, to, to try and do this. But And she's, we've got a total budget. She's she's because she's organized and say she's sorted the budget out and everything, including flights, staying over there. Two operations in two different hospitals, one on the spine and one on the, the gynecological uterine operation for, for a different condition, which is also very serious for her. The total the total budget is I'm US dollars on this one, if you don't mind, is twenty four thousand twenty four and a half thousand US dollars. Because I'm hoping to get some money from Americans on this. Um so I'm thinking I can, I'm thinking dollars on that one in US dollars. So basically, we started a we started a crowdfunder yesterday for her to see whether we can help as much as we can. She's selling some land in in Uganda that she's got. The, unfortunately, the land price in Uganda has crashed because of COVID, so she's not going to get anywhere near what she would have got it for a year ago. Um, so she needs right. she desperately needs help. We've got this crowdfunder, and we launched it yesterday. We've already got. Uh, last time I looked, I think twelve hundred pounds, which is so that's two and a half thousand wow. Canadian dollars. We've done well in twenty four hours, but it's about five percent of our target. So we're desperate to keep to keep it going. So it's on. It's it, it's. I think we're calling it Esther's because his daughter, her daughter is called Esther. E S T H E R. Esther's appeal. Um, and okay. It, well, you you emailed it to okay. me, so I'll see if i still have the link and i'll put it in the show notes Brilliant. if not i'll get it from you but we'll definitely okay. include it in there okay i really really appreciate that is this the same alan who was associated has been associated with the former pan-african acupuncture yes, project now the yes. global acupuncture yes. project yes i know i know alan i've worked with you're alan. kidding me you are kidding no oh my god no oh my god <laughs> because what i've been saying yeah that would have been in yeah that would have been in 2008, because that's when I believe I introduced you and Richard Mandel yeah, 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 yeah. of the Pan-African yeah, Acupuncture yeah. Project. Yeah, so I in 2008, I was there in Uganda working with Alan. Oh, my God. Amazing lady. Okay. Yeah. I hope listeners do take to the link that I put in the show notes and, and look into maybe donating to help out Esther's case and 
And uh, thank you for doing the work, for taking it on to raise some money for them. Thanks. I know it's not easy. Uh, thank you so much, Todd. I really, really appreciate this opportunity to, to be to be spouting <laughs> in the best way I can. And, and also, I said, yeah. are you doing, because you, you're a marathon runner, aren't you? I was before an injury took oh, that away from no, me. Oh, yeah. Okay, because I was thinking marathon runners—they must be so twitchy now. <laughs> These marathons aren't they? Really, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, w I would be, but uh, not, not now. I'm sorry. So. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I shouldn't pull that up. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's opened up so many other doors, right? Yeah. That's the way life works. Yeah. So, well, I really have enjoyed this extremely educational conversation with you it's it's probably been a decade since we've connected i think that's probably about when your book came out yeah. and uh it's definitely been too long so let's stay in touch great work stay with it hopefully some people will come forward and and join in and help you out Brilliant. where i mentioned moxafrica.org for your charity any other links that you want to send people to um, I could, I, when I send it through, I could send the, the, the links to the papers if they wanted to have a look at the paper. Or well, actually, Please. it's, it's, okay. it's, it's, you can link to it from the, from the website actually. So that's okay. But maybe I'm it is on there. Yeah. It's right on the homepage, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just kind of like say one more thing, which when we're in Japan, cause we've done presentations on this in Japan and stuff as well, with the help of one of our trustees, Yuki, Yuki Itai, who's, who's been an absolute tower of strength. And we came up with it. We kind of, I got a slogan which is a Japanese slogan. They have an, an old, uh, like it's, it's like a sort of idiom in Japanese called Otagai-sama. And Otagai-sama was something that was used after the 1923, I think it was, Kansai earthquake, the big earthquake that obliterated Yokohama and took half of Tokyo with it. And they were looking for help from expat Japanese in, in wherever, Hawaii, California, whatever. And they had this thing, Otagai-sama, which means roughly speaking, we're all in, we're all in this together. But obviously it, it was a Japanese idea and a very national national type idea. And our, so we've, we've borrowed the slogan and we've added to it. And uh, so we, we say, because we're not, we're not talking about national, we're all in together. We're, this is a global thing. And if we don't get, get our heads around this, the world is in big trouble. There's no question about it now. Um, so we add two other words, Mina Isho in front of it. Mina means everyone. Uh, and Isho is all together. So Mina Isho Otakai Sama. We're all together. We're in this together, and we we um, I'll, uh, I, we've got some some postcards with this beautiful calligraphy with Mina Isha Otagai Sama. So that's our kind of like our our byword Mina Isha Isha Otagai Sama with very poor Japanese pronunciation. I add, if any, anybody <laughs> Japanese listening, still sounds beautiful, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Well, thank thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I look forward to staying connected more in the future, Merlin. Brilliant. Okay. And I hope the college is going well. Yeah, it is. It is. Excellent. Things are going very great. well. Because yep. these are tough times for those for, for these sort of institutions, isn't it? So it's great to hear. And just all the best for you in beautiful Vancouver Island. That's all I can say. <laughs> Thank you. Next time you're on the island, come and visit. Lovely. I will do, definitely. You take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Merlin Young. For more about Merlin and his work, 
please visit moxafrica.org. That is M-O-X-A-F-R-I-C-A dot O-R-G. Also, check out his books on moxibustion and tuberculosis, which are linked to in the show notes of this episode. And don't forget to consider donating to Esther's Surgery Fund. You will also find that link in the show notes. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's only study options, combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask your acupuncturist what moxibustion can do for you.